This is Power Athlete Radio. With your hosts, Denny Kaye, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs.
in uh, the ribeye, the T-bone, and the sirloin off the same animal. And we have proven over and over again that really the sirloin is the, is the best tasting meat on the animal. Uh, the, the fillet, the tenderloin, that's for the wives. <laughs> that is a true statement. That's, that's the wives portion. Uh, the, the best meat on the animal, most flavors in the tenderloin, that whole, I mean the sirloin, that whole area in the hip. Well, I always and, love the uh, the T-bone. I mean, I love the porterhouse, which is the, the New York strip on one side, and maybe give you a little bit of fillet, but I, I remember that. Yeah, it's the, it is the, it's the same thing as a T-bone. It's just a little bit further down the lumbar. Yeah, I remember uh, that. But that is, a, that's a, that is a good steak. There is no doubt about it. But if you're uh, if, and if you're going to sit down at a restaurant and buy a steak, I always get a porterhouse. But uh, a good sirloin from that same animal will be will have a better flavor than either piece of the, of the, of the porterhouse. Now, the, uh, so that's just, that's just completely extra information that really no one is interested in, but John and I like to talk about food. So. Well, we do. We uh, talk about lifting weights and uh, eating, and, and eating that's food, what, which is really eat. all that exists in life. Uh, I mean, what, what else? Well, I don't know what there is. I mean, our other... I don't know. That pretty much wraps it up as far as I'm concerned. Or your other favorite writer, all, all these people that write books but don't write their books. That's another pet peeve of rips. Everybody comes yeah, that's up with really a book, but nobody writes the book. Ghost writers. Yeah, ghost writers. Ghost writers. Yeah, I don't, we don't use those. We, uh, in fact, we do all our own final edits. We don't even send that out. We, uh, we Every book we produce, we produce it beer in the house and uh, you know it's, uh, I don't I don't have a lot of respect for people who can't write their own material uh, well, gosh I, I don't know who we're we probably who we're talking about the, but, you know the what I was going to say like it seems like half of like modern entertainment none of those guys are even writing any of their own material oh no it's too much trouble to actually sit down and work I mean you know, if you could just you put your name real big and then with uh, whatever the other guy's name is at the bottom, with wrote the book. Yeah, with means he wrote the book. <laughs> but it's, you, get to, you, know, you get to reap all the benefits. You don't have to do any of the work. It's easy. Just yeah. give yeah. topics to right. make it happen. So... Uh, something that Rip and I have been talking quite a bit about, we had a great conversation the other day, is this kind of observation that I made over the course of my NFL career. And I know Rip's made this observation working with athletes and different lifters, that difference between somebody who is weight room strong and field strong. And obviously, you know, Rip growing up in Texas, uh, you know, living on a farm and kind of working and, you know, being around guys that work on the oil fields and, uh, you know, cattle and, you know, these kind of farm deals. Really, uh, I remember we started talking about training and conditioning. I remember Rick always referred to, like, field work and that type of hard, heavy kind of lifting that you really only develop lifting hard and occupant, uh, awkward implements. And there was this kind of – and we, we've talked about the seminar. We've talked about it a million times. I mean, I've written about it on my blog that there's a, a physical strength that you develop training and doing things outside of the weight room and that there's only a – you know, while, you know, the weights are great, they're, they're not awkward, they're easy to lift and relatively to other things. And that idea of you know, field strength versus weight room strength and really 
how you work on developing big, strong athletes. And, uh, you know, if you can go back and look at the world's strongest man, old competitions, and, you know, guys like Cavs who were extremely weight room strong, but yet were extremely strong in the world's strongest man. But then you sent Cavs out to go play for the Green Bay Packers, and the guy wasn't able to do his job. So uh, we've been kind of talking a little bit about it. I've been working and doing a bunch of research for an article for Rip on it, so I figured we'd talk a little bit about it today. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. I've worked with uh, with guys all my life that were apparently not strong, but in fact were really strong. Uh, horseshoers and uh, uh, guys that uh, uh, work with their hands. You know, we're familiar with guys like that. Uh, they have what sometimes gets called dad strength, right? Uh, and, you know, good ball players, good athletes on the field seem to have a type of, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a different type of strength, but I've been thinking about this since John and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the phone. Uh, I, I don't know that it's a, a different type of strength because obviously force production is force production. But it is the ability to produce a huge amount of force in a very short amount of time, whatever the situation requires. And I think that uh, really what it boils down to is that it's a it's a it's the ability to disinhibit your hands and feet in order to apply strength, even though it might get you hurt. Uh, you know. I've, I've watched horseshoers get jerked around under a under a, a big 1,200-pound horse and fight the damn thing back long enough to get a shoe on. Uh, I mean, it's just a, that's hand strength. Now, what could the guy curl? I don't know. But can the guy chin himself, you know, 80 times? Probably not. You know, what does he bench press? What does he squat? What does he deadlift? He probably doesn't train. Uh, but when it comes time to actually apply what strength he's got, he's very good at applying all of the force necessary to get the task done. And I think that probably is is the same thing that happens on the field. Uh, you know, a guy knows how hard he has to hit you, and he does it. And that may be... It may be that he's applying a greater percentage of his absolute strength uh, than another guy who's weight room strong, but his neuromuscular system is capable of applying all of it, a great percentage of it, even though uh, that effort constitutes a huge amount of his absolute ability. But he can do it over and over again because his central nervous system is actually willing to recruit that stuff. It's willing to recruit it right now in odd positions, in positions that are awkward to apply the strength. And, uh, you know, if, if we can agree on that, then the question becomes, what does that guy do if we put 300 pounds on his squat? Or does well, he, he have a he, faster adaptation? He gets real scary, you know. Or does he adapt faster because he's already kind of built up these neuromuscular pathways? Is really, uh, or you know, for the listeners and the people that we work with, is how do we take some of that 
physiology for that individual and translate it in and make a complete training style? I mean, that was really the goal for our power. Yeah, that's a, that's a real good question, and uh, you know far more about that than I do. How do you how do you take a weight room strong guy and convert him into a field strong guy? Well, that uh, was... I don't know, John. I wish I did. It'd be... That's a that's an interesting topic, and I hope that's what you're writing this article about. Yeah, but, that's uh, that's the premise of the article, and yeah. I, I had a good chat yesterday with uh, Rafael uh, Ruiz uh, on another podcast. Rafael trained me my first six years in the NFL, and is a super sharp strength coach. And guys would come train with us. I mean, at one point, I think in my fourth and fifth year training with him, we had probably anywhere from 12 to 20 guys consistently NFL players from, you know, in the Tampa, Orlando, you know, uh, St. Pete Beach. I mean, that whole surrounding area would come train with us every day. And it was pretty amazing um, not only to see the guys that were, uh, you know, starters, good players, and kind of see the guys that were, you know, weight room strong and field strong. And the thing that we always really noticed is that the guys that were good players um, that had good field strength they could play were always had good flexibility and were just, you know, the comment that uh, we laughed about yesterday is the guys that didn't have it we just called stiff. So that was kind of something we always kind of laughed about. That guy's a stiff. That guy moves. He looks stiff when he does everything. The other guys right. could bend and move and were flexible that were right. able to, you know, uh, somehow. They were able to apply that strength from awkward positions yeah. in, on the field. In other words, they, were, they weren't just strong in the optimum position. They were strong in every position, and they were able to get into every position because they were strong there. Yeah. A man that's not strong won't go into a position he can't use. We say this all the time training old people. Uh, if you'll let me do a little little excursion to the side here. Hey, this is all uh, about you. When, 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 we, when we train old people, uh, a lot of times what we find is that old people are apparently unable to get into the bottom of, say, a squat. Uh, most commonly a squad and uh, inexperienced coaches might see that and say oh we need flexibility work well I think we've proven conclusively over and over again that flexibility has nothing to do with the bottom of the squat position uh, hamstring flexibility has nothing to do with the bottom of the squat position nothing whatsoever because the length of the hamstring doesn't change uh, going from the top to the bottom of the squat what does change is a person's ability to handle his body weight at the bottom of the squat. And if, if an older guy is just not strong enough to do that, then he's not going to permit himself to go into that position. It's not flexibility, it's strength. You won't put your body in a position that you don't have the strength to get out of. And we see this in old people, and it's, it, I think it needs to be kept in mind that when you're training old people, you're dealing with people who are typically not strong enough to use the full range of motion of most of these exercises. And it's not a matter of flexibility. It's a matter of you having the right equipment to train these people. Take that analysis and apply it to the field, and I think your observation about seeing people that are stiff is easy to understand. It, it's not that they're it's not that they're stiff. That's what they appear to be, but they will not use positions 
in which they are not strong. And a guy who has only developed his strength in the weight room has developed his strength with the most ergonomically friendly device in the world for lifting weights, and that's a barbell. And if you're not good at applying strength in non-mechanically efficient positions that the barbell does permit, then you're going to look stiff on the field, sure, because you're not field strong. You're not able to apply your absolute ability to produce force in awkward positions because because why? That's really the question. Probably because you've never done it before. Probably because as a kid you didn't get used to putting yourself in those positions of applying force. And again, if you find yourself in a position that that you're not able to apply force in, you're not going to go there. You're going to stay out of that position and you're going to look stiff. And as a result, on the field, you're going to be slow and inefficient and not a good player. There's a doctor out of Utah, a guy named Craig Bueller, uh, that I've worked with, and I found him late in my NFL career, unfortunately. And I went and saw this doc because he does something known as muscle activation technique, and he was able to assess my body and find due to certain injuries, different muscles had shut down, and then the guy's able to work and do some manipulations to actually get the muscles to fire again. It was uh, very enlightening and almost scary when he started putting me into different positions. And as he was putting me into the position to challenge, to test the muscle, as I was getting there, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he's like, what? I'm like, I don't like that position. That's not a good position for me. And he laughed and he's like, well, that's because that muscle isn't firing. And he made a really cool observation having worked with, uh, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of NFL players, professional baseball, uh, you know, Olympic athletes. I mean, he works with all the uh, the winter games because he's up in Salt Lake City. He said that the difference between the good athletes and the greatest athletes in the world, and he was the um, uh, he was a doctor for the Utah Jazz for 29 years and worked with you know Carl Malone and John Paxson and these guys. Uh, he made this observation that the best athletes in the world, the reason they're the best is because every athlete gets injured, that the best athletes have the ability to recruit and their body has a certain intelligence to be able to find a way to pull and recruit uh, around injuries and muscles that have shut down. So, for example, he's like, I can bring in an athlete who's playing at a high level and test him and find out that the guy has, you know, of the 100 muscles I've tested, 25 or 30 of them not firing. And he goes, for most people, if you turned off 30% of the muscles of their body firing, they could get out of bed. But he's like, these athletes are able to find a way, either it's through patterning, recruiting, different mechanics, different movements, find a way to uh, be successful at their job uh, with these kind of, you know, without their muscles firing. Uh, I think of the 200 muscles he tested on me, something like 140 were shut down. And I walked in there thinking my whole life was coming to an end. And the hilarious hilarious part is uh, as he started working on me and putting me in these different positions and kind of helping me kind of rebalance some stuff, I remember walking in and starting to go train and actually move and actually feeling like I did years ago before a lot of these injuries had broken me down. And uh, it was just kind of a real fascinating deal. And I I remember really thinking about that and uh, realizing that, you know, every athlete's going to get injured, just the nature of training, the guys that are able to constantly recruit and his, his deal is he really called it this physical intelligence uh, 
uh, that's what makes the good ones and the great ones, and he noticed this with a lot of NBA players. So it was kind of a really cool observation um, that, you know, you're kind of getting back to that here's a situation, like he said, old people and different lifters, uh, you know, maybe those guys never trained in those ranges of motion. They never did these type of, uh, you know, movements so that they, you know, that appearance of being stiff is just the fact that they're not strong in different planes of motion. Well, I agree with that, but every time I hear about muscles not firing, quote-unquote, not firing, quote-unquote, my bullshit detector just goes all the way up to 10, okay, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Uh, in the absence of neurological damage, a muscle is receiving motor neuron signal, and it's turning on. Now, the damn thing may be weak. It may have been injured at one time, and you may have learned a movement pattern around it, but it's, it, that doesn't mean it's not, quote, firing, unquote. Now, I got uh, kind of a, a little minor shitstorm started on T-Nation last year uh, with an article about all of this not firing bullshit, not firing glutes, not firing hamstrings, all this, but... And, and then I pointed out that in the absence of a neurological deficit, the muscle is going to fire based on the movement pattern you're using it in. Now, you may alter the movement pattern, but the muscle turns on and contracts because that's what muscles do. If you ask the muscle, if you ask the hip to extend, then the muscles that extend the hip contract it. Unless you've got EMS or nerve damage, then the muscles contracting. Now, you may have learned how to do that movement as a knee-dominant exercise, but that doesn't mean that the muscles aren't firing. And any time I hear aren't firing, I just, you know, shake by it's a fad nowadays. It's a fad. Muscles fire. And when I backed a couple of these people into the corner about this, they started saying, well, it's not that they're not actually firing. It's just that they're not strong. Well, I'll and I said, well, I, I, thought, I thought, you know, a you, muscle. You, I have no doubt that 10 years of getting the shit kicked out of you in the NFL got you injured. And when you have to play injured, you learn ways to move that don't involve using the injury. But I don't like. So in terms of the macro explanation, I'm in complete agreement. But if we get down to the fine mechanism, it's not that your muscles are not firing. It's that you chose not to use them in a particular movement pattern. You can alter a movement pattern. Well, if you but, think about but you, it. But you're not altering the innervation pattern of the, of the muscles well, through any other mechanism by that except that you altered the movement. Well, if, if you know, in form of, uh, like, let's say you injure a joint or you injure something, the body and the muscle will actually stop firing to injure that. So I don't believe that. Oh, I do, 100%. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that in the absence of an actual neurological mechanism for the non-transmission of, uh, of the nerve signal, that you have a muscle that is turned off. I'm, now, I'm, I'm telling you. I, I, if you remember, about three and a half years ago, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. Yes. Uh, this year, over, within the past three months, the medial head of my gastroc has just started firing again. And the reason, and, and this is 
there's a stark difference between what I'm saying and what you're saying. The damn thing wasn't firing. It wouldn't contract. But the nerve is growing back. And I'll eventually probably have, you know, partial use of the of the medial head of the gastroc again. But that's been quite a thing I've had to rehab. But there's an actual neurological explanation for that. The nerve was severed in the rupture. And maybe by my surgeon in the repair, who knows? Well, it's just like uh, you know, when Dr. Bueller worked with me, I mean, my quad, I had a similar deal with a ruptured patellar tendon, tore the retinaculum, the surgery severed the, the nerve, and uh-huh. I still don't have feeling on the outside of my knee, and I still can't get my quad to contract uh, the same way it did before well, the injury. Uh, the, the numbness in the skin is not necessarily indication of, of uh, anything going on with the motor, because those, those are all superficial nerves, and those get, hell, I've got a uh, numb spot on the knee I had operated on in 94. Uh, they, uh, you know, things that, uh, but that doesn't mean my, the quad underneath it is not being, is not innervated. There's two different sources of innervation. And if, if they severed, and they may well, may well have done that, may severed the thing. And I sometimes I think these guys don't pay much attention to the neurology of, of, of the situation when they're doing an orthopedic repair. Uh, and if that's the case, yeah, quad may not have extended, uh, may not have fired. But in the absence of such an explanation, it's very hard to see that a nerve impulse would not make the muscle contract. And I've never heard an, an explanation down at the histology level of, of that phenomenon. All we, you know, it's just what we do nowadays is we, oh, he's not firing. Uh, we've got to do special exercises to turn that back on and these special exercises. Uh, I think that if you squat with correct form, then all the muscles that are working in the squat fired. Sure, but you're talking and I, about... It, and I'd like to know why they would. You're, and I you're, haven't you're heard talking about reason. healthy, normal individuals. I believe when you put people in extreme trauma, like playing in the NFL or some of these other uh, yeah. major deals, and you have some large blunt force trauma, I think that muscles in different parts of the body will shut down to prevent that's, damage. The blunt force trauma, I'll buy that, John. Yeah, I'll buy that. Hell, I mean, I, you know... I mean, I mean I've, I've, I've watched football. <laughs> I know what blunt force drama looks like on TV. You know, yeah. I, I'm certain that things happen. But this explanation is being applied to just guys, you know, off the street. All oh, your glutes are asleep. Yeah, well, we're well, not talking about those fucking muscles. No, no, Rip, I mean, you're talking about guys who, uh, you know, are like, oh, my glutes don't fire, so uh, because I sit on my ass too much, well, there's probably right, right, right. not strong. Like, really, That's all bullshit. Yeah, what we're talking about is, uh, you know, athletes like... World-class athletes. Yeah, like world-class athletes. Like, I think... Uh, yeah, about who actually get hurt. No, I'm like completely Thor. willing to buy that, that sometimes there are neurological mechanisms Sometimes also, when you get hurt, when you hurt a muscle, you alter your movement pattern so that you don't hurt it when you run. Sure. Sure. And an altered movement pattern means that you're not using that muscle as a compo- in its normal component function of the movement pattern. 
Well, and that's like but like it's the, because of the altered movement pattern, not because of the neurology. Well, that's like what Dr. Bueller was talking about, that if you have enough of these blunt force traumas and the body start, stops, you know, using and kind of, you know, finds different ways to, you know, get things to fire. And, and the analogy I like is, you know, water always finds its level. It always will find a, you know, downhill. Eventually you'll find a way, but at what cost? And he's like, you know, I've mm-hmm. so many athletes that have been so damaged. Uh, last time I was in there, there was a girl who just competed in uh, in Soji, uh, uh, a snowboarder, and she does the big half pipe, and she had taken a couple pretty violent falls. And from landing on her face, uh, a bunch of the muscles in her neck and her shoulder had pretty much just shut down, and she couldn't turn her head. And he'd gone in there and kind of rebalanced her and worked with her to kind of rehab the stuff back. And, you know, she had been all of a sudden hadn't been able to really do a lot of, uh, of you know, kind of that violent kind of 360, you know, whatever, 720 movements to one side and then, you know, ended up working with her and she was fine. But he's like, you know, um, there wouldn't really be much of a need for me if she wasn't, you know, going at 40 miles an hour and landing on large, hard ice packs. He goes, you know, that type of blunt force trauma similar to football is really where we're seeing a lot of these athletes kind of run into these problems. So I think once again, uh, you know, People look at, you know, some top-tier athletes, and then they kind of start trying to extrapolate things back, and you're like, dude, unless, uh, you know, your job involves three hours of another 300-pound man trying to kill you every Sunday, I don't know if you're going to necessarily have the same injuries. Well, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I just I just think that the fad nowadays is to explain uh, an inability to move in a certain way. Uh by saying muscles aren't firing. And, I, and and furthermore, I would make the observation that if a person doesn't know how to coach the movement that they're trying to get you to do, maybe that's a better explanation for why you can't do it right. <laughs> shitty coaches. So we go back to shitty coaches. It's like this functional movement screen. I think that's just bizarre. Evaluate a person's capacity to do a movement that you have not coached them to do and then draw conclusions about corrective exercise based on that. I think the only conclusion that can be drawn is, is yeah, uncoached movement is is not going to look good usually. And sometimes it's harder to coach the movement pattern than the guy is prepared to do. So, but I don't think that merits corrective exercise. I think it merits the guy learning how to coach. So the first time I did the functional movement pattern or the functional movement screen, I failed. And I was not happy about yeah. it. And, and, you know, that should have told you something Well, about your NFL career. I mean, good God, John, how's a man playing in the NFL going to fail a functional movement screen? Maybe you need corrective exercise in order to continue playing in the NFL. Well, what I did is... Christ Jesus. Uh, I mean, that's just, After I failed, yeah. uh, I took 10 minutes and practiced the movements and had them put me through. And, then, and, and then you did them right, didn't you? Yeah, isn't it crazy? So the guy... You know, know, that's, a, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Well, uh, I went over and practiced Recently, I, I see that thing get applied in a lot of instances where, you know, look, instead of sending your your health club people to the functional movement screen thing, why don't you send them somewhere and teach, get them taught how to coach correctly? Maybe that would be more productive if you learn how to coach a squat. You know, then if you sit around and, and try to explain ways why this guy that you haven't coached the squat can't squat, 
He can't squat because you hadn't showed him how. That's why. And uh, I suggest that maybe people should learn to be better coaches. <laughs> and how, how would they do that? Oh, I don't know. I don't really have an opinion on that. <laughs> the Internet? <laughs> well, you know, we teach these things. John teaches these things. We, I mean, you can learn how to coach movement patterns. Mm-hmm. I know it's not as much fun as learning how to administer tests, but uh, I'm of the opinion that if you learn how to coach movement patterns, that while you're coaching the movement pattern, you can evaluate the athlete in terms of where the deficit is in the movement pattern, and then you correct the deficit, and lo and behold, the muscles that do that part of the movement pattern get stronger. They don't turn on, they get stronger. Correct movement must be coached, and special exercises don't alter that fact. And uh, so, do you I have sound any- harsh? I probably sound harsh, don't I? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, gosh, I'm sorry, but you know, people, I, I've, uh, kind I've of- been doing this a long time. I've been doing this for 37 years, and and. Uh, Kind of gentler words I would never associate with you, even though I do think you're yeah. a big softy and a big sweetie. Uh, yeah, don't tell people that shit. No. <laughs> but I think I might be the only one. Everybody thinks I grip so hard. I'm like, really? I think Griff's a sweetheart. I love him. He's uh, he's always been real great to me. So I, uh, you know. Well, that's because you're so big. Oh, you are. Oh, you're, just, you're so big. Oh. You just command my respect because you're imposing physical stature. Oh, thank you. Uh, you're, you're, you're so kind. I don't, you know, I, I don't yeah. think anybody ever gets to see this side of you. Well, well, let's just keep that between ourselves. I, I don't want everybody to know where I donate money and stuff. So, uh, another big question that we get, and I'm sure you have probably 7,000 threads with millions of pages about the novice effect, this amateur progression. And I was hoping to talk a little bit about it just because um, it's an observation that you made. And I was always under the impression that it was something that maybe Bill Starr had made an observation of and that you had kind of, you know, something, because I know you you work with Bill. So when we were wrapping a little bit before we started uh, recording, you actually told me that that is not something that Bill Starr observed and that was something that you kind of observed and then I remember when we started really discussing this I went back and read a bunch of physiology and found a really cool passage in some of Zadiskorsky's and Perkashansky's work about you know unadapted nervous systems and really looked at putting some science behind it and found that you know an unadapted nervous system is the reason that this thing works is because it's an unadapted nervous system and that they you know the inter and the intramuscular coordination and you know went back and just analyzed a bunch of the physiology, and even more than that, we've used the linear progression with our amateurs for the last five years. I mean, it was, you know, I know people find this hard to believe, but we've had beginners put 200 pounds on a squat in 20 weeks. Oh, easily. So Easily. People that find that hard to believe have just never done it. We do it all the time. You know, you take a kid that walks to the gym squatting 135, if you're not coach enough to get him to 335, in four months, then you need to step out of the way and let somebody else do this because we do it all the time. It's not unusual. It's not weird. It's just normal for a normal 
well-sized individual to be able to get strong that fast. If they're not getting strong that fast, it's the coach's fault. It's not the fault of the specimen. So, to back up, when I first started training with Bill a long time ago, now I, I have to tell you that, that that observation was never made to me. And uh, it's, uh, it's, I think it's one of these things that he just assumed everybody knew. When in fact, they don't know that. And if you have been in the gym business as long as I have, you'll and watch what people do when they come in the gym in the absence of guidance. They don't know that. They have no idea that. It seems perfectly obvious to you and me that when you first start with a kid, you find out how much he can squat the same day that you're teaching him how to do it. You take him up to where it's kind of heavy, but where he's still good, you know, under the bar, where his movement pattern is perfect, where his movement pattern is correct, whatever lightweight that might be. And your experienced eye tells you that any more than that weight on his back today would turn the movement pattern into something less than 100%. And then it seems perfectly obvious to you and me that the next time he comes in the gym, he goes up 10 pounds. And the next time after that, another 10 pounds. And then the math just sticks in. And as long as he can go up 10 pounds, he goes up 10 pounds, and then he goes to 5 pounds. Every time adding 5 pounds to the work sets on his squat, once again, with complete, perfect technique, so that all of the muscles that, that make the movement pattern occur receive their anatomically directed share of the stress, so that they adapt in their anatomically predetermined uh, percentage of the effort so that each muscle group participates in the movement at a little bit higher level every time, the whole system working at the same time, until that process is no longer possible. And that process works anywhere four to six to seven, maybe even eight months on, in certain circumstances. And that seems perfectly obvious to us. But the fact of the matter is, is Bill didn't write that down anywhere. And he never told me. I learned that the hard way from running a gym. When I started my, when I bought Wichita Falls Athletic Club, it was Anderson's Gym in 1980. David Anderson started in 1980. I bought it in 84. From the day I started the gym, I showed everybody that, that signed up in the gym how to squat, bench press, and deadlift. And then I showed him how to power clean. And over the years of doing that, I solidified this idea in my mind because I was keeping notes. I kept notes. I wrote all their workouts down. And if you if you write down eight workouts across a page and the squat goes up every single time, that does an interesting thing. It catches the eye. We being pattern recognition animals, we recognize the pattern. I see the pattern repeated for hundreds and hundreds of people over dozens of years. And the inescapable conclusion that you come to is if you force the adaptation, the adaptation will occur. If you wait for the adaptation,
situation to occur by itself, you'll still be waiting. Everybody that we've made go up on the squat went up on the squat. They got stronger because we didn't give them the option of staying at the same amount of force production because every time they come in the door, we went up five pounds today, five pounds more, five pounds more. And, yeah, if you can't put 200 pounds on a kid's squat in four or five months, you're just not much of a coach. And anybody that accuses that effect of being the uh, uh, the fault of steroids is just a – you're just a – not only are you impugning everybody's integrity that knows how to coach, you're just being a pussy yourself. You're saying that, well, anybody stronger than me must be on steroids because that's the general rule of thumb, right? This is not a function of steroids. It's a function of human physiology. It adapts. If you're a young male, you can adapt. Your physiology will adapt, but it won't adapt unless you make it adapt. And many, many coaches for many, many years have failed to see this simple linear pattern as being necessary to success in the weight room. Just think, John, think of what we have done here. You and I, who have taken a whole bunch of novice athletes and shoved them down the road toward a productive career that they would not have had otherwise had we not had the the ability to show them what to do to get strong enough to actually play on the field and maybe get a scholarship and maybe continue a sports career and get something accomplished that they wouldn't have been able to accomplish. And it's not that the process is complicated to understand. In fact, the fact that it's simple is kind of something that I think a lot of people don't like. Well, we've known this for years is that the more complex something is, the better it looks. Like everybody sure. looks at it like sells, hey, doesn't it? Let it me get sells. The functional movement screen sells because it looks complicated. Well, I mean, that's think about it. The like, more complicated things are, the more money they're worth. Yeah. And the more money they're worth, the more money you make. Well, so, and, and, and you know, and I don't, I hate to be cynical, but I really think that it, that a lot of this stuff, that this 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 head uh, headed in the complex direction with strength and conditioning, is just a, a a job assurance program for these guys that really don't know how to train the simple way. You squat, you bench press, you deadlift, you press the bar over your head, you learn to snatch and clean and jerk, you add weight to all of those things, and over a, a relatively short period of time, the athlete gets better. Well. Duh. Why do we need to have him do Bulgarian split squat? What the hell is the purpose of that? You know, I know they're easier to coach, but I'm sorry. If you don't know how to coach, learn. And, you know, it it, it, it really gets kind of frustrating when I see the, the industry that you and I are working in being manipulated in this in the obviously commercial direction for no apparent reason other than the fact that it you know complexity is proprietary yeah complexity sells well that's people don't want to hear us talk about yeah it's simple you just squat and you go up well it's not you know, sexy you, i mean <laughs> to, i mean what's sexy is 
undulating periodization and all these other things. Oh, yeah. You, you know, this, and you're going to periodize. The thing is, undulating periodization is certainly romantic. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. That. I mean, if you look at all these programs and all this, you know, reps and sets and volume, you know, and you look at this whole stuff, it looks sexy. And you know what? You can sell sexy. Yeah. The problem is, is hard work where you got to come in and do fives, triples, singles, doubles, you got to do a little bit of conditioning work. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, and we have people come in and, oh, I, I, I just want to look good. I just want to look good naked. Great. Well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to let you lift some heavy weights, so we're going to build some muscle. We're going to make you do some short work, so you lose maybe a little bit of body fat. We're going to get you to eat some real food, so stop fucking sucking down your soy latte macchiato at twice a day from Starbucks. <laughs> And uh, we're going to get you to eat some sad fat uh, because, you know, the U.S. government hates it and thinks it's bad, but it's really not. And then As a general rule, anything the U.S. hates, you probably need to be doing. Yeah, it's like <laughs> saturated fat and uh, guns. It's <laughs> right. Why, yeah. it's all of that shit, you need to do all that. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, we've got into this, and, uh, you know, we see it in CrossFit football land. I mean, we see it with our, you know, the power athlete stuff is, you know, and even when I get up and I present this, uh, you know, and, and long ago when I, I, you know, when I started, I first got approached about doing CrossFit football. I contacted Rip about, you know, I had been an amateur in so long or a beginner that I needed to understand the do's and don'ts and, and really understand it. Having gone to Rip's seminar, uh, I was just fascinated by this linear progression. And the reason that I was fascinated by it was because I did not get the opportunity to do it the way that I saw it written out. Uh, we actually did a different deal. We just did it. I didn't either. Didn't either. And I, and I look back on my lifting from the early 80s on, and I think if I only had known then what I know now. Now, how many of us have said which that? Which is I exactly mean, which is exactly uh, Jesus what Christ. I'm fucking you know how much time I wasted? And in the 220-pound weight class when I should have gone to 242. Well, I mean, think about it. The reason I wasn't worth a shit as a power lifter is I was, you know, I got some bad advice about what weight class I needed to be in. Well, I mean, dude, we, we yeah. tried to do a linear progression with singles. Right, and what, what do we know about singles? You got to have a highly adapted central nervous system to efficiently lift a single. Right, uh, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. That's why people are like, "Well, can I can I do your linear progression with singles?" And I'm like, "No, you have to use it no, with." It I mean, we've tested I, it with fours, we've tested it with fives, we've tested it with six and sevens, and we found that a rep range in that four to seven works well, but nothing works better than fives. And that's why we use fives. Fives are the deal, man. The further away you get from your fives, the further away you get from your base of strength. Well, and yeah, that can't. That's simple. I know that's painfully simple, and I know that it would be much sexier to do Matt Bed. And it would be. It's in fact, it's a whole lot sexier if only the strength coach knows how to do Matt Bed. You know, and specialized knowledge is required. Well, the fact of the matter is, fives work. We had squats, bench presses, deadlifts, presses work. We had clean the snatches work, and I don't know what the hell you need to do anything else for besides chin. Chin's work too. Need is chin. Rip, we have one of our. Other than that, that's about all you do. Advanced. The most effective way to spend time in the weight room is not to spend it doing different exercises. It is to it is to spend it matching your level of training advancement to. Volume, intensity, and rest on those basic exercises. The more advanced.
complex the relationship, but it always is based on facts. For everybody, it's based on facts. There's more manipulation required, the more advanced you get, but the more sidetracked you get into doing assistance exercises and special exercises and everything that's not the basic movement patterns with a little bit more weight next time is just that is a that is a sidetrack that people end up going down a lot of people don't learn that it's wrong but that's just i mean here i am in 2014 i'm an old beat up man i can't do it my productive ability to, to go in the weight room and actually train instead of just exercise is gone. But in the process of having made all these mistakes, I think we've written some pretty good things down that properly applied will help everybody avoid the mistakes that I did. And uh, that's what I've tried to do. You know, it's, it's too late for me, but it's not too late for uh, most of you guys listening to this broadcast. Just stay with the simple stuff. Just try to get stronger. Eat a lot. Get big. Get strong. Get fast. Use your feet. Move. Let John's advice in terms of how to apply this stuff to sports guide you in terms of the application of strength, but just acquire the strength in simple, basic ways, and and enjoy a long, productive career because of that. Dude, that was awesome. You know, it's, it's, Rip, it seems to be like uh, just from my experience and more of a, like a CrossFit environment, um, I'm getting people coming in who maybe watch the games. They want to do, uh, you know, what they see on TV, and they haven't put in the years of of just even like bodybuilding, just basic. You know, you got some isolation movements. Even when when my program was more of like what looked like a bodybuilding template, I still benched, I still squatted, and I still deadlifted. You know, we did military press. I mean, when those people come in to me and they want to do all these things, but they haven't put in the, the years of just basic barbell work, it's like I almost don't I almost don't know what to tell them. Well, because it's like tell I want to say, you know what? You need a couple years of basic lifting. Right. And well, they don't want to tell them this. Of all of the types of physical adaptation that we can obtain. Uh, strength, power, accuracy, precision, you know the list. Endurance, stamina, all that shit. Strength is the most basic adaptation that you can obtain. Strength is the basis of all of the rest of them. And if, if strength training, if strength acquisition is not made the priority, especially early in an athlete's career, then he is watering down his potential to get better. Strength, in fact, we don't even let our novice athletes do any conditioning for the first four or five months because their work capacity is going to go up anyway, whether they condition or not, just by virtue of the fact that they're getting stronger, their work capacity increases. And we've seen that. So 
many times in military applications, you know, a guy that's required to do a, a, a two-mile run test or something like that doesn't do any running, trains for strength for five days or five months, goes out, takes the run test, cold turkey, and his time's down. It happens, it happens all the time. I mean, it, it, the, the jury's not out on that. We already know you don't need to do any conditioning at first. Later, it becomes critical. But at first, you just have to get strong. And I understand why CrossFit people don't want to do that. They 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 want to flail around in the air on the chin-up bar. They want to do hundreds of stuff because they want to participate. They want to be in the community. Have they the discipline to just not do that shit? at first and just get strong, then their participation in all those types of random fitness activities later would be at a much higher level. But of course we, you know, are stuck in this situation where we have to pretend that random exposures to a variety of different stresses actually constitutes training and it doesn't. Now, Rip, the, Rip, have you ever have you successfully distraction? Rip, have you successfully changed anyone's perspective that's been from, let's say, the random uh, random approach to training and work capacity threshold training, whatever you want to call it? Have you taken anybody that's been kind of deep in that CrossFit thing, pulled them out, and just put them under a barbell for a year, and then let them retest and realize that? Sure. Have you not read my board? Uh, I haven't been out there. I was going to say like. Johnny, I remember uh, Johnny like Payne. Wasn't Johnny Payne right. your uh, your apprentice for this? Who's this? Uh, Johnny Schaefer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He uh, he started with us. He kind of converted over to a more strength based protocol, and uh, and did pretty well, if I remember. He's not had complimentary things to say about me of late, but uh, oh, are, are nonetheless, since you, you brought it up, it's your fault, not mine, okay? Uh, are, are you guys feuding or something? I, I don't know. If I'm out of touch, but is, is, is he mad? Hey, look, shithead. Come in here to force me to say nasty things about people on the, on the, on the web. My God, I try to stay away from that. I already bash the functional movement screen people for 10 minutes. Is that not enough? Do you not already have that scalp? Do you want more blood? More blood? Is that what you want? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Jillian, uh, what's Jillian? Uh, Mosley? I mean, she was a big cross. Yeah, I was going to, I mean, I've read her article. Jillian is an absolute amazing athlete. She stopped doing random bullshit two or three years ago and has uh, has become one of the, the best raw power lifters in the world. Uh, she's been invited to the raw event in Australia in November with uh, Brandon Lilly and and I think Dan Green is going and, you know, uh, our guy Jordan Feigenbaum is going down there and they're, she's doing really well. Billy does well at anything she does. You know, Brandon Lilly hurt himself pretty good. Yeah, he, you know, I, I talked to Brandon at the, at the Arnold. That guy was 10 days post-op, and he was out there walking around. He was a, he, from a complete knee rupture, a complete absolute derangement. 
uh, on one side and most of the other side. He was walking around in the Arnold that day. He and I sat and talked a couple hours. Yeah, that's uh And that's uh, he's an impressive guy. He's an impressive athlete, incredibly tough, talented guy. We just we've just started to see what he can do. Yeah, I was and uh, uh he's a crazy uh, Blaine Sumner was there too. Blaine Sumner squatted eight forty eight in uh, a belt and a singlet on Friday and on Saturday competed in the equipped meet and opened with a thousand eight. <laughs> so he squatted eight forty eight on Friday and then he squatted a thousand eight on Saturday. And I you know, that guy's He's just getting started too. He's a he's an amazing powerlifter. He's an amazing lifter. And there's there's a lot of good people. Mike Touchere is doing a great job. Uh, Mike was there deadlifted eight eighteen on Friday in the raw meet. And uh, yeah, these uh, I'm really enjoying getting back involved with uh, uh, raw powerlifting and, and that aspect of the sport that I grew up in. We got a. Uh, you go to my website. We got an interview up just last night of, uh, of Joe with Joe Ladner. Uh John, you may remember Joe. He was a great lifter back in the early '80s. I know that uh, Zangus helped him with some equipment. You know, mm-hmm. and I know you know New George. And uh, yeah, those guys used his equipment and. Uh, uh, he's a he's a great connection to that time in powerlifting. Also, he's just fifty right now. You know uh, when George and, uh, right? did a five fifty five triple bench in a, in a tank top about a month and a half ago. I was going to tell you when George passed away, uh, we were at the funeral and his daughter came over to me and said, you know, I still got a bunch of trophies and we found all these old boxes of all like his training logs and all this information that he had. And I hit her up and was like, I'll come pick it up right now. She's like, well, yeah, let me call you. We're cleaning some stuff out. I'll call you. And I was like, you know, I'd love to have all of his old training stuff and the training logs. And, you know, I'd love to just go back and see all that history. I know a bunch of people would be really excited to to, to go through oh, it. Oh, yeah. What a, what a treasure of data. And um, called her up, hit her on Facebook, and uh, they threw it all away. Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Didn't didn't call me, and I got hit up by um, the guys out of York Barbell, you know, uh, had done a search on George and found some stuff I'd written on him and reached out to me. And I've been hit up for, I mean, at least once a month, I'll get somebody emailing me about, you know, like what kind of programs did Zangus and those guys follow? Like what did Cass do? Like what was that Thompson Power team like? These people that aren't involved in this don't really understand the loss. And I was, yeah, I, I, I was pretty tragic because, uh, you know, all I have is just what's in my head and, uh, you know, the memories and kind of some stuff that he, he'd written me and, uh, you know, some yeah. letters. But for the most part, uh, you know, this is pre-email. I think George would fax me things, uh, you know, I think how long ago it was or have to send me stuff uh, handwritten on yellow pads. But, yeah, I was pretty crushed uh, to think that all that, you know, all this training logs and all that information and just a lot of the, you know, the period, you know, the way that he kind of set it all up uh, was lost. So, I was uh, like, I said to her, I was like, I'll, I'll drive over and pick it up. Tell me where it is. I'll come right now. I'll dig through it. I'll find it. Like, I, I you know, she I just, need that stuff. She just didn't want to fool with it. Yeah. And that's just, that's terrible. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, she doesn't know what she's done. Yeah, I mean, like had his old belts and a lot of the old, uh, a lot of the old gear. And I even said to her, I'm like, I'll, I'll come take all of his equipment. I'll take all the gear. Like, you know, he had one of, uh, you know, the original. I'll get it out of your way. Yeah. And yeah, she wouldn't. Uh, you know, she, you know, like, first thing didn't understand. Yeah, just they maybe it was tough, or you know, I don't know what it was, but they just pitched it out, and I was, uh, I was pretty broken up about it. But yeah, I just got an email the yeah, other day asking for somebody <laughs> if I could help him uh, understand a little bit of what you're of that kind of old time programming, and you know, I just shot the guy an email like, hey, based on this is what I saw, and this is what we did, and the, these are the pillars of what you know we worked on, and you know, this is kind of. Yeah, I was sad. I figured you'd be sad on that one like I was. Yeah, that's not good. So not good. We're trying to write all this down. I'm going to have Joe back out and uh, here probably in the fall talk to him some more. I'd like to just debrief him for about a year Yeah. because he was there. He was there in the middle of all of this, and uh, he was a great lifter. He's still a great lifter. And uh, guys like that, you know, we need to learn this advanced programming stuff from them. I think we've got the – I think we have better ways now to start novices than they did back then because, again, they just hadn't collated the data. I think we're pretty good at, at doing novice and intermediate programming. But when you get up into the advanced levels of the sport, those are the guys we need to know this stuff from. How did they do that? And uh, what did they depend – what variables did they manipulate? You know, how did they do it? That that sort of thing. It's important to get that all down. And, uh, you know, we just take it in little bites. Do it a little bit of time, best we can do. Well, cool, Rip. Hey, that's about an hour, so I think we're about good. But, um, yeah, that was awesome. I Well, I enjoyed it, John. You call me anytime, man. Well, of course. Well, I'll definitely follow and, up. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap a little bit more, and I always enjoy our conversations and our friendships. So thank you. Great. Anytime, John. Yes, sir. Always good to talk to you, man. Thank you. Thank you, other guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks a lot, Rip. We appreciate it. Thanks, Rip. That was awesome. All right, team boys. Bye.